Well, good morning, everyone. This morning is the final episode, you might be glad to hear, in our series in the book of Judges, which we're calling Flawed People, Faithful God. In the opening chapters, if you cast your mind back a few weeks, we, uh, we saw how the scene was set for the rest of the book by the failure of Israel's tribes to clear out the people who, at that point, lived in the land that God had promised them uh, to bring them into. The purpose of that wasn't ethnic cleansing. It was about cleansing the land of idolatry. Uh, but as a result of Israel's failures and their compromise, idol worship continued to flourish in the land. And of course, the Israelites themselves got sucked into that, resulting in the kind of pick and mix religion that Caleb spoke about last week. This week, we will see all the chickens coming home to roost. Before we get to that, though, it's worth noting that, you know, just in passing, that several of these judges that we've been hearing about in recent weeks get an honorable mention in... Is this thing on right? Yeah, it's okay. They get an honorable mention in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the so-called the Hall of Fame of uh, God's faithful people. So Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah are among those Old Testament characters who are commended for their faith. Sure, their characters were flawed and, and they, got some, they got some things wrong, but nonetheless, they responded in faith to what God said to them. And, you know, faith isn't just saying that you believe something. Faith is acting on it, isn't it? And uh, the good news is that God still works today through flawed people who are willing to act on His Word. He doesn't wait till we're perfect. Isn't that good? I need to warn you up front, our story this morning is a bit of a shocker. If this was a movie, it would definitely be adult rated. But, but I promise you, it does have a happy ending. Uh, given that this is the, the third Sunday in Advent, as, as Nathan pointed out this morning, um, I've decided that my title this morning is probably the worst Christmas sermon you'll ever here. So the story begins, oh, there was a slide with that. Are we moving forward? Oh, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> so our story begins in chapter 19. I'm not going to, it's three, ver three chapters. We're not going to read the whole lot, but just the, the opening verses, first uh, maybe 10 verses of chapter 19 in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, remained, uh, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, "'Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go.'" 
So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the girl's father said, Please stay the night and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day when he rose to go, the girl's father said, Hey, come on, refresh yourself. Wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day's nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. And early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. So you might notice that the story begins, in those days, Israel had no king. That is a refrain that we've heard time and again in this book of the Bible. The author is making a point. At that time, the Israelites still, they were a tribal society. They identified primarily with their own tribe. It wasn't a nation state like it is today. And relationships between the tribes could be pretty tetchy. There was no single ruling authority that they, to which they all submitted. In this story, the central characters are a Levite and a concubine. Neither of them is named, and that's a clue. The story isn't just about them. It's, there's a wider application, in a sense. It's a story about Israel. I think it's also a story about us 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That's one of those verses that just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, like a lot of what we read in the Bible, it wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. What do we know about the main characters? First of all, the concubine. Well, a concubine was kind of like a wife, but without the, the status or rights of a wife. The deal was that the woman gained a degree of economic security as part of a man's household in return for an exclusive sexual relationship. The Levites, they were the people who were called to teach and to model the ways of God. Now, that definitely does not include men taking advantage of women or treating them as sex objects. So right at the start of this story, there's an indication that something is badly wrong at the, the heart of God's people. However, at the outset of the story, it appears that he's the one who has been wronged when his concubine is unfaithful and then runs back to her father. Four months later, that tells you something about the relationship, doesn't it? Four months later, when he goes to persuade her to return, we see the father giving him kind of a really warm welcome. I mean, I'm thinking, if this was my daughter, and her, you know, I don't know that I would be so, so generous in my attitude. But listen, in that culture, hospitality was expected to be shown. It was a big thing. So up to, up to a point, the father's treatment of the Levite is not unusual, and yet it's like it's a bit over the top, isn't it? No, stay for another day, stay for another day. It's like he's trying to ingratiate himself to the Levite. Now, the explanation for this is probably that the penalty 
at that time, both for adultery and for a concubine to, uh, to run away, to leave her master, was severe. It would, it would usually mean death for her and disgrace for her family. So, so the father is probably deeply relieved when the Levite shows up uh, in order to take, the concub- take his concubine back. There's nothing in the story to indicate that the concubine is even consulted. Neither her father nor the Levite seem to care about what she wants. In their own way, they both treat her as an object. And that's an ongoing theme of the story. Now, from here on, it has about the best part of three chapters to run, so I'm going to have to summarize from here. On the day that they finally set out, they don't get away until the afternoon, and before too long, they approach the city of Jebus, which would later become Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. The Levite servants suggest that they stop there for the night, but the Levite is unwilling to do that because at that time, it's still inhabited by Canaanites. So they press on until they reach the city of Gibeah, which is a bit further on, and they arrive there just as it's getting dark. Now, unlike Jebus, Gibeah was inhabited by fellow Israelites of the tribe of Benjamin, so they could reasonably reasonably have expected to be shown hospitality there. But in the end, the only person who takes any interest in them is an old man who comes from the, the same area as the Levite from the hill country of Ephraim. And he invites them to spend the night in his home. Now, this is when things start to get a bit dark. Later that evening, a a gang of local men surround the house and pound on the door, demanding that he brings out the man who's staying with him so that they can have sex with him. The old man goes out and speaks to them. And here's what he says, chapter 19, verse 23. No, my friends, Don't be so vile. Since this man is a guest in my house, don't do this disgraceful thing. You're thinking, good on you, mate. So far, so good. Then he goes on to propose an alternative. He says, look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do whatever you wish. But to this man... Don't do this disgraceful thing. (laughs) Now listen, I imagine most of us have found ourselves in a situation where you have to make a decision and it feels like there's no good option. You're trying to work out what is the the least bad course of action. So we can kind of have a certain amount of fellow feeling for this old guy, but, but how could he possibly think that what he proposed was a lesser evil to what the men demanded. Well, every culture, including our own, has its own set of way scales, in a sense, by which we kind of weigh up what's right and wrong. And there may have been a number of factors. I'm just trying to read into the situation that doesn't, doesn't spell this out in the text, but there may have been a number of factors in play in his decision. Firstly, as we've said, in that culture, hospitality was a big thing. You had a solemn responsibility to protect those to whom you gave hospitality. So he says, since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. 
Secondly, there's probably another reason that he calls it disgraceful. Although the Israelites had by then the kind of pick-and-mix religion that Caleb was talking about last week, they hadn't entirely rejected the law that God gave them through Moses on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And that law included the prohibition of homosexuality. Leviticus 18, verse 22, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. That's probably in his thinking as well. Thirdly, a value that they had absorbed from the surrounding culture, cultures rather than learn from God was that women were less valuable than men. So both the concubine and his own daughter would have been seen as men's property to be done with as they wish. So what he proposed seems terrible to us, but it was consistent with the culture that he was a part of. <clears throat> and just, <clears throat> you know, in the same way, I think we need to be aware that a lot of our actions, whether we, are real, whether we realize it or not at the time, <clears throat> are guided by the culture that we are a part of. And, and, and human culture isn't formed in a neutral spiritual environment. When people turn from God to idols, then their culture will be shaped by spiritual forces that lie behind those idols. That's what happened to the Israelites all these years ago, and that's happening to us today. The ideologies and the values that are shaping our culture have spiritual power behind them, and the Bible warns us not to be taken in by them. Uh, so, for example, Colossians 2 verse 8 <clears throat> says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking or from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So if we take, for example, the current thinking that your identity is derived entirely from your own feelings and from your desires rather than from biological fact, and, and no one must ever question that or what you identify yourself to me to be, well, you're free to disagree with me, but to me that sounds like a hollow and deceptive philosophy that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. But these things have power behind them. They have power to take people captive. And I would say that right now, it's attempting to take our whole society captive. Just ask anybody who's got on the wrong side of that. So we need to be aware that, that culture is not being formed in a neutral spiritual environment. And listen, I'm not by temperament a doom and gloom kind of guy, <clears throat> despite the, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> My throat's going as well. It must be something about the, the air up here on the stage. <clears throat> Despite the constant barrage of negative news that, uh, that we're subjected to at the present time, there are a lot of good things going on in this country. There are a lot of good things about living in this country. And, you know, we are called to engage positively with the culture that we live in, uh, to affirm what's good, to pray 
for its well-being. But at the same time, we need to avoid being taken captive in our thinking. Because we can't be salt and light in the world if we share the same ideologies and values that the world does. That's what happened to Israel. And it, as we're going to see in this story, it didn't end well. So back to our story. <clears throat> I'm sorry about this. Thank you, Bridget. Am I allowed to touch this in the, under the current regular? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Ah, where can I put this? I won't trip over it. There we go. So in the end, the gang refuse uh, the man's proposal. And uh, what happens is that, the Le- to cut a long story short, the Levite takes matters into his own hands. Uh, he chooses to save his own skin, and he pushes his concubine out the door. And this poor woman is raped and abused throughout that whole night. In the morning, this is just unbelievable. This Levite is significant at this point in the story. He's no longer referred to her husband as her master because in truth, that's the nature of their relationship. He gets up and he opens the door. Man, he's been lying sleeping while all this is going on. He gets up. And he opens the door to go on his way. And when he sees his concubine lying there, he says, get up, let's go. But there's no answer. So he just loads her onto her donkey. To be honest, it's not even clear in the text whether she's dead at this point or not. But he just loads her onto the donkey and sets out for home. How are we doing? (laughs) Listen, don't leave now. I'm sure I overheard Caleb saying earlier that he was going to take us all down the pub after this to help us, help us recover. So, um, <clears throat> okay, for this next bit, you might want to close your eyes. When he gets home, the Levite cuts up his concubine's body into 12 parts and sends a part around each of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he gets the reaction that he is hoping for. Verse 30 It says, everyone who saw this said, such a thing has never been said or done, not since the day that the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Such is the the sense of outrage that the tribes of Israel get together and raise a massive army. Not since you know, they, they were settled in the promised land. Have they ever been so united? Only this time, they're about to go to war, not with their enemies, but with themselves. So they call on the Levite to tell them what happened. Here's what he tells them. Chapter 20, verse 5. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. Hmm. Not quite what happened, is it? He forgets to mention the bit where he pushes her out the door in order to save his own skin. Before we judge him too harshly, let's ask ourselves if we have ever given an account of some situation in a way that presents ourselves maybe in a better light than the whole truth would suggest. Or maybe we tell it 
in a way that's more likely to provoke the kind of response that we want. It's not exactly that we lie, we're just selective with the facts. Anybody ever done that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I'd be too embarrassed. Now listen, having given his report, the Levite demands to know what they're going to do about it. Chapter 20, verse 7. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. Now he's the, the moral hero demanding justice. He gets the response that he's looking for without hesitation. The people rise up as one man. They're going to give those villains what they deserve. So they send messengers to the tribe of Benjamin to, to, to hand over the guilty men. But the Benjamites, they refuse. They do what tribes normally do. They close ranks. And before they know it, Israel plunges headlong into civil war. By the third day of hostilities, over 40,000 men from the army of Israel have been cut down. For comparison, that's about half the size of the current British army. Not only that, but the tribe of Benjamin has been very nearly wiped out. What started out as a quest for justice soon turns into a massacre. Not just Gibeah, but all the Benjamite towns are put to the sword and set on fire. Out of all of the tribe of Benjamin, only 600 men are left alive. Now when they've cooled off, the, Israel, the Israelites feel remorse over what has happened. Chapter 21, verses 2 to 3. The people went to Bethel, to the house of God. Pity they hadn't gone there sooner. And where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to us? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? We human beings have a staggering capacity, don't we, to look elsewhere to blame for the consequences of our own actions. Why has this happened to me? What have I done to deserve this? It seems that they don't hang around long enough uh, to hear what God has to say. Instead, they come up with a plan to fix the problem. Unfortunately, the plan involves pretty much the same behavior that caused the problem in the first place. They do what seems right in their own eyes. They remember that when they had gathered to go to war with Benjamin, they took an oath, all of them took an oath, that any towns that, that failed to show up you know, to, 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 to bring their contribution to the army would be put to death. So they ask around and discover that no one had showed up from the town of Jabesh Gilead, which I think is on the other side of the Jordan in the, the area that was occupied by the tribe of Manasseh. So they send 12,000 men there on a mission to kill everyone in that town except the young women who had never slept with a man. And they, 400 such women they find there. And they give these young women to the surviving Benjamite men. However, that still leaves them 200 short. So the elders have another great idea. 
there's a festival coming up at Shiloh, and they tell the, men, the Benjamin men who still don't have a wife to hide outside the town. And when the girls of the town come out in their party frocks to join the dance, they're to grab one each and take them. So 200 women who think they are going to a dance are kidnapped as part of the repopulation program for the tribe of Benjamin. And so the story concludes the same way as it began. Chapter 21, verse 25. In these days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Listen, I'm sorry this morning to have subjected you to such an awful story, but it's there in the Bible. The Bible doesn't justify what happened, but it it doesn't try to cover up the realities of human nature and what happens in a society that turns its back on God. But what lessons can we draw from such an awful story? Well, I said at the beginning, it's a story about Israel. It shows that Israel, basically the point of the story is that Israel has sunk to the same level as the people who inhabited the land before them. You may have picked up, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you will have picked up some of the clear parallels between this story and the story of Sodom in Genesis 19, before Israel even came into being. There too, the men of the city demanded to have sex with strangers under the protection of another man's roof. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah became a byword for evil that we still are familiar with today. And the point here is that Israel was no better than them. Their calling to be a light to the, to the Gentiles was basically, you know, finished. God would have to full, fulfill that in some other way. And by the grace of God, he did. God's promise to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham would be fulfilled, but through one man, through one seed, rather than through the nation as a whole. So it's a story about Israel. It is also, I think, a story about us. You know, if you look at all the elements in this story, betrayal, misogyny, violence, abduction, rape, killings, spinning the truth, these are all features of our world. Maybe not quite in such a horrific way, but they're all features of our world too. And you know what? It's nothing new. Uh, tribalism, we also have that going on, don't we? Um, you know, every, when people talk about the community, what they're often referring to isn't so much the community as a whole, as the tribe that they identify with. And every tribe has its own culture warriors who attack you know, people who, have a, who hold a different view. It's no longer, you know, we no longer seem to be capable of, of, of disagreeing with people. You know, we, people that disagree with us are bad people and they need to be punished. We see them as the enemy. This seems to be more and more the attitude that we, that we are kind of struggling with, not just in this country, but in the West in general. And, you know, this story has been running since the Garden of Eden, right from the very beginning. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. We don't see things straight. We have an unconscious bias. The Bible calls it sin. And we are all caught up in that. We're all 
guilty. We all sin and we all are sinned against. Like the cricket player recently, we rightly complained of being a victim of racism, only it turned out that he himself had made racist comments. Listen, I'm not condemning him. Let him without sin cast the first stone. I certainly wouldn't like everything that I've said and done since I was 19 made public. I wouldn't like everything I've said in the last couple of weeks made public. Um, imagine if, if instead of a forehead, we all had a screen that showed what was going on in our minds. Well, listen what we do, haven't we? Social media has got us pretty close to that. Um, and it's not pretty. I, I don't think that social media has created the problem. I think what it's done is revealed the problem. It has revealed the true state of the human heart. But listen, it is a problem that is beyond our ability to fix. There is only one solution. The virgin will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Making more and more laws won't save us from our sins. Virtue signaling won't save us from our sins. Shaming people will not save us from our sins. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. And he saves us from the penalty of our sins through his forgiveness, through what he did on the cross. He saves us from the power of sin in our lives. He gives us a spirit who, he, who, by his grace, he teaches us to say no to ungodly passions and desires. And in the end, Jesus will even save us from the very presence of sin in the new heaven and the new earth. What a savior we have in Jesus. I have just one final point that I want to make this morning, but I'd like the, the band, <laughs> Dan and Bethany, if you guys would like to come, let's give them an applause. I mean, it's hard being up here looking out at everybody wearing masks. Thank you for being willing to lead us in worship this morning. Listen, I said at the start of the story that this is a story about Israel, and it's also a story about us, but I did promise you that it had a happy ending. And here it is. This is also a story about God. The central characters remain unnamed because they represent a bigger reality. The concubine represents wayward Israel, God's unfaithful bride who has committed adultery by serving the gods of her neighbors. The, the Levite <clears throat> represents the spiritual leaders of Israel who are supposed to teach the bride God's ways, but instead they themselves have become part of the problem. This is the reality that forms the background to the book of Judges. But these events point forward to a time when God himself shows up in Bethlehem in the person of Jesus. And like the Levite in our story, he comes to reconcile his bride to himself. From then on, that bride will consist of everyone who puts their trust 
in him, whatever their ethnicity or background or gender. His church is his bride. And Jesus is the husband who will never exploit or mistreat his bride. He won't give his bride over to the forces of evil to have their way with her. Instead, he offers his own body to be brutalized. He sacrifices his own life in order to save ours. He alone is the king that the book of Judges is longing for. In the words of Isaiah, let's, can we just read this out together? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Listen, unlike those flawed human judges who ruled and brought peace for a few years, when it comes to our flawless king of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And that's why we can rejoice on this third advent as Christmas draws near. Happy Christmas. <laughs> Amen.